Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our grace-infused Christian Cosmopolitan's Guide to the Contents of the World's Events as filtered through the interwebs and then filtered through our take and lens. But before we get to Another weekend, this week I had the privilege of talking with Alyssa Wilkinson, who is a professor at King's College in New York City and also the co-author, along with Robert Joustra, of her most recent book, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, on the show for the very first time, uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, who you are a critic at large and a professor at King's College in New York, right? That's right, yep. You self-describe what you do very well. Like, I mean, some people don't do that in interesting ways, but you do. Uh, Yeah, my uh, job titles have made it easy for me. (laughs) Um, And when you say critic at large, it turns out people think that you are like running from the law or something like that, which is totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. She's a a fugitive critic. Um, That's right. On the land. uh, Used to be critic at Rikers Island, and now she's (laughs) on the run. Uh, so you've written a, a book called, a, along with uh, Robert Joustra, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. These are some of my favorite things. This is like in, a, this is like in, in uh, Cheers when Cliff goes on Jeopardy and they're mm-hmm. like, and he gets his dream board. It's like postal workers, mm-hmm. mothers and sons, beer. <laughs> I feel like this is my, this is my, my dream board. You and Robert Jouster also deal with a book in here that everyone talks about Mm -hmm. uh, and footnotes, but no one reads. Uh, Charles Taylor, uh, Sources of the Self, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we started, it's really, um, there's a book that he wrote called The Ethic of Authenticity, and then it sometimes is published as The Malaise of Modernity, and then it became the eighth chapter of A Secular Age, which is really the book that nobody reads, the, the one that's as long as Infinite Jest, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so we decided to use that as kind of the structure for the book. Yeah. I feel like all of his big, big books, nobody reads, but everyone talks about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and of course people like us are just making it easier for people to do that since they can just read the, read our book and get a pretty good sense of his argument. But you know, that's what our job is as popularizers, I guess. Alyssa, you're an enabler. That's what you are. That's right. You're an enabler. That's right. I, so I, give us, like, for those who are not familiar with the book, with either your book or with Charles Taylor, uh, who are not reading all these popularized summaries and quoting them as if they have read them. Um, what, like, when you describe modern, what, what do you mean? Like, for, what's the, the skinny on modern as you guys use that? And is, it, um, is it Peter Berger, I think, that says, uh, maybe like in the Sacred Canopy or something, um, that... Uh, in pre-modernity, it took real courage to be a heretic. And in late modernity, you feel like you're not a real person unless you're a heretic. Yeah, that's a really good encapsulation of what Taylor is after when he's talking about the age of authenticity uh, as being, you know, the the idea that in our time, the only 
the really the only moral mandate is to be a heretic, to be someone who follows their heart or their idea or whatever, uh, their own idea of what their life should look like as opposed to following everyone else's. And so it's not that people weren't capable in some way of doing that in the past. It's just that it wasn't a mandate the way that it is today. Do you think this is why, you know, I noticed it maybe starts with the Sopranos, but it's really in relief, I think, Mm -hmm. in something like Breaking Bad, where your sympathies for a character are not at all driven by morality, but by their own sense of authenticity. So like in Breaking Bad, you like Walt in the beginning and and you can't stand um, Walt's brother-in-law. As it goes on, you like the brother-in-law more. Because he seems like more in his own skin, but but it's regardless of their moral choices and things like that. That that this is, you know, or or I think of like shows like Hannibal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where there's not really uh, heroes and villains as much as people uh, trying to find themselves. Yeah, that's right. So we end up with a lot of um, popular entertainment, particularly I think in the last fifteen years, that really focuses on. Um, creating characters that we see as real, which I think is a good thing in general, but it means that they're morally conflicted. You know, nobody's wearing the white hat, uh, which interestingly is a trope that scandal tries to bring up, bring up over and over, uh, with those exact words, but yeah. And so, you know, I don't think breaking bad wants you to valorize Walt in any way, but there's certainly a, a sort of charm and, um, an interest in him, despite the fact that he literally is getting, to be a worse and worse person as the show goes on. Um, or he's just displaying his awfulness, depending on how you look at it. Um, and you know, you get the same thing from, uh, from a, a house of cards or something like that. So we're interested in them, not because of their morality at all, but perhaps because of their competency, uh, which is actually something a lot of critics have written about is our just obsession with competent people in pop culture. Yeah, it's interesting because Frank Underwood, I think, isn't part of the brilliance of the show that here's a politician who gets to be president, and I don't think he's got a single political conviction. That's right. Yeah, there's no policy going on at all in that show. It's kind of crazy. Um, And, you know, it's like in stark contrast to the West Wing, where, you know, the interest isn't in the policy, but policy is a big part of that show. These days, it's hard to find any political show in which policy is part of it, except maybe Madam Secretary. and even that one has a totally different cast than the West Wing does. Uh, and so that, I don't know, maybe it just tells you a lot about what makes for good, effective entertainment. Um, but also it's, you know, it kind of tells us that what we're interested in is these individual people and their individual, their individual choices and their, the way they live their lives. It's funny, you mentioned scandal, like, uh, that's like a guilty pleasure. Oh, it's not even a guilty pleasure because I just enjoy it. I don't feel guilty about it, but my wife, I like, but it's funny we're watching it. Do you get this feeling that like soap operas are so terrible, maybe because they don't have big budgets, they don't have great camera equipment and they've got to produce, uh, you know, one a day. But what if you had primetime budget, uh, great equipment and, and good yeah. actors and you could just do a soap opera once a week, they actually become better television. Yes. they be, Yes. And you know, and it's funny because we, you know, there obviously there's like a critical, uh, Different, or there's a big difference between um, critical sort of good TV and TV that makes a lot of money. And I'm still totally flabbergasted that, for instance, I was doing some research for a piece last week or last year and looking at the the um, viewership statistics and the top most watched shows in the country besides 
um, you know, football, basically, besides football, our um, Scandal, Empire, uh, both of which are huge soap operas, basically, at their core. Um, and um, the, like, The Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men, which, you know, are shows that I don't, I literally don't know a person who watches those shows. Um, but obviously, like, sort of um, standard uh, trope-based entertainment is still very big. But, there's, you know, there's tropes underneath all sort of prestige TV as well. Do you think that the reason why fewer people watch sitcoms, like, I mean, their last sitcom, I knew lots of people into it was Seinfeld, right? And mm-hmm. is this because, like, character development has gotten so good in the serial drama that they're funnier, too? Like, sometimes yeah. the humor in, in, in serial dramas is better than um, sitcom humor. Yeah, I think so. And also, um, you know, a sitcom stopped... Say, this is an interesting topic to me because I think sitcoms stopped trying to say anything in the 90s. Um with things like Friends and Seinfeld. I mean, they're super funny, but they don't really have a point to make. Uh, and there's actually a lot of people talking about this right now because there's some documentaries on uh, older comedy coming out. And I, you know, like, so for instance, All in the Family actually had some really big critiques to make of culture uh, through its characters. Uh, but at the same time, it's just really hard to sustain a good sitcom. I'm, I watch a lot of them or I, you know, I watch a couple seasons of a lot of them and then end up dropping off because I don't care about these characters and there's no, there's nothing to be said. Um, but then you watch Breaking Bad and it's hysterical. It's a very funny show, uh, while being very dark. Uh, and there's a lot of those happening right now, I think, um, because, you know, everyday life is, I think the perspective is everyday life sort of bends towards tragedy, but is filled with comedy along the way. Now, in your book, you talk about uh, like post-apocalyptic uh, kind of genres in sci-fi and mm-hmm. fantasy. Um, it, there's a podcast, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's called Imaginary Worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on it, I think, actually. You've been, I, you know you've arrived when you say... <laughs> I've been on it, I think. You know what I mean? It's like, um, but yeah, they did this um, thing recently about about um, econ- like economics of imaginary worlds. And they're saying like in times of scarcity, we tend to fantasize worlds of abundance, and then in times of abundance, we tend to like our the imaginary worlds we create are ones of scarcity, like where everything falls apart. Like they even talk about alternative ways of valuing things. So Battlestar starts each time with how many people are left in every episode. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, so is that, um, so why, so why or why do we want to see, like you, you open the book by saying we're going to hell. <laughs> kind yeah. of like That's all of our, the television we really like is, is things coming off the rails yes. and, and our world ending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple things behind it. It is certainly true that only a culture that's sort of, uh, comfortable and a bit decadent can manage to sit around and just entertain themselves in, in mass on, um, on stories of their own destruction. Like that wouldn't make any sense if you were in the midst of being destroyed. Um, and so we're not, uh, except, and this is interesting when we dug into the history of apocalyptic literature, um, which is basically the dawn of time, as soon as we started telling stories, we started telling stories of the end. Um, but in the past, and this was by far the most interesting starting point for us in the past, we tended to talk about the apocalypse as something that God would visit on us or the gods. So, you know, we did something bad or he finally got fed up with us 
and then would visit apocalypse on us. Um, and so in fact, this story of Noah, uh, is a story of apocalypse. Um, even though it's sort of retold, it's told as history, but it, but that's the framework for nearly every apocalyptic story that pops up. Um, you know, people just got too wicked and the end was brought on them. And the interesting thing about the story of Noah and which is echoed in the story of revelation, for instance, in the Bible is that apocalypse is hopeful in that case. It's sort of a wiping away and hitting the reset button and restarting. Um, what we found was that in our time, what predominates is dystopian apocalyptic stories. So the end comes and then it, there's no renewal. It's just bad. And things just continue in that fashion. So if you look at, um, the hunger games, for instance, the, um, the ending of that series was really, uh, well, it was just very, um, unsatisfactory to a lot of people, but it's not a story of apocalypse. It's not meant to say here, here came the end and then came the next thing. It's sort of like here came the end and it's just going to keep going this way. And that's a very, very postmodern way to look at the apocalypse as not a, not a renewing force. Um, but a dystopian force. And the reason for that generally is today we, ne we almost never tell stories where the apocalypse was brought upon us by God, but rather something that we did to ourselves. So for instance, we invented Cylons or robots or whatever to serve us. And then they chase us through space and try to wipe us out. It strikes me. Like if you look at like the walking dead, right? Like, um, Comparing to something like The Strain, right, which my wife and I have loved that show, mm -hmm. um, but the the vampires are such a subject. The real there's there's a subjective evil. I mean, they're 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 really there's a will behind them. It's weird because in The Walking Dead, aren't the zombies more like a weather pattern? I mean, they're like you know they're not the really scary thing are other human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a big part of it. So I haven't. Uh, part of the benefit of having a co-writer is that I haven't watched everything thoroughly that we wrote about and neither has he. Um, and we were able to fill in our gaps. So I should say that the walking dead is, hasn't exactly been my jam, but I do think zombies in general um, are interesting as a thing to look at because they're all, they've always been political from the very beginning, right? It turns out that zombie stories almost always are about whatever is in uh, cultures, consciousness um, and what they're afraid of. And, whether that thing is actually a threat or not. And so when you come to the walking dead, what you end up with is like a threat that we, that's actually not the threat, like the real threat. And the show is very clear about this, right? The real threat is other people um, who don't agree with you and, uh, or don't have the same, you know, goals or uh, the way they're going to live is different. If you want to call it that. Um, and so the fear is that, um, you know, A, what if you're wrong? And B, what if you're not wrong, but the people who are, um, are going to take you out anyhow. Uh, the, so the real threats in Walking Dead are not really those things that we've created, the computers or the viruses or whatever. That's kind of what zombies stand in for always, but rather us. Like, And so if anything, it's actually even more dystopic because it's saying like, even if you were to take away all the things that are social niceties, we'd still be a threat to one another. You know, so, something that's so interesting to me about The Walking Dead and probably about a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff, if, if it's post-apocalyptic kind of um, set in the West, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in late yeah. modernity, is that like we're in such a networked world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but what's striking about like The Walking Dead is 
um, the world all of a sudden becomes much more uh, tribal. Like you, you, you don't really know what's going on a county over or two counties over, <laughs> and the, the whole cultures develop independently. I mean, that's just it's it's. I wonder if that's sort of like subconsciously is that kind of a people are feeling overconnected, so we kind of make an imaginary world where where it's more localized again. Yeah, or I mean, you know, if we're stripped of technology, we lose almost all of the things that mark global a globalized world like you can't even trade <laughs> you know everything has gone back to uh there's postmodern theorists who talk about space-time compression being big part of how we live which is to say like it used to be if you wanted to get from new york city to boston you had to walk there so everything moved at human scale or maybe if you were super lucky you could get on a horse uh, and then it was at horse scale, but now it happens instantaneously. And I can know what's happening in Egypt and know what's happening in Boston and know what's happening and not know what's happening in the next house over from me, um, because space and time have been compressed. So if that gets stripped away, if we no longer have that, then how are we going to operate? Especially if we were used to that. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about medievals living in a, a, non-globalized world. It's a totally different thing to take people who are postmoderns and drop them into that world. Like we just operate very, very differently in that case. And what does that look like? And what does that mean for us? Um, although it's interesting to see how infrequently our networkedness comes up in some of these stories. So like I'm um, a few episodes ahead of where uh, the I'm watching Preacher and I had screening screeners, so I've seen a few more episodes than have been aired so far. And um, I'm, it's great. And it's. But by the way, does that just make your whole life worthwhile? I mean, like well, just getting the screeners. <laughs> like, like I'm wondering. I'm thinking, gosh, how do I leverage podcasting to get screeners? I yeah. mean, that that's it. Just sounds amazing to me. It it sounds amazing until you've done it for a while, and then it becomes a you know. So, for instance, I had one a couple weeks ago. Like I have a full-time job that's not criticism. And so it's, I have to do all this stuff on the side. And I had a couple assignments that meant that I had uh, two full seasons of upcoming shows in my inbox that I needed to watch like that day. So, you know, so you're saying to your husband, sweetheart, stop bothering me. I've got to watch TV. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I mean, he, he knows to walk away and, or sometimes he watches it with me, but you know, as soon as you have 22 hours of TV, you have to watch before tomorrow. Uh, some of the, some of the charm wears off a little bit, I think. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to complain. Uh, it's a good, good gig. Um, but but you know, preacher is interesting because it actually is looking at religion in what is essentially an impending apocalypse, I think. Um, but things and it's it's contemporary. The the series was written in the nineties, but they've set the show in the present day. Um, and they do have modern technology, but they're not using things like social networks, at least not so far. And I'm fascinated by that. I don't know why they haven't. I'm kind of curious to see if they go there. Um, but part of the problem is, you know, it dates the the cultural object. Um, I think that's actually why her was smart to set the story about 15 years into the future. Uh, because, you know, everything's so kind of futuristic, but plausible. Uh, that I think it'll still be relevant for a while without seeming outdated. Today, it seems like that thing, things like substitutionary atonement and imputation, um, even in, in, in evangelical circles, are becoming sort of taboo uh, bits of theology, and oh, it's not relevant anymore, and you can't talk. And yet, it seems to me like everywhere in popular culture and media, where things like um, 
vicarious sacrifice <laughs> and imputation show up when somebody treats somebody better than they are and they live into that. It seems like we love these kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And yet, so why did theologians think that they're irrelevant? <laughs> I have no idea. I have a theory. I mean, I'm not a theologian at all, but I do have a theory about this uh, because I get annoyed when I see them in pop culture when they're too uh, obvious. And I think the only reason I get annoyed is because it's just overdone. Um, like everything, the term Christ figure is overdone. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like one of many kinds of tropes I think that, uh, people can use, but I think a lot of, a lot of, um, like overexposure perhaps in movies and TV actually tends to like, uh, play down the, the remarkableness of that move. Um, and I, you know, never have been so annoyed as I was at, Batman versus Superman for multiple reasons, but one of them was just like, it was so heavy handed about that imagery. And, um, I feel like, you know, I don't know, people just like, we get it. Okay. It's sacrifice. Like that's, that's an important thing, but not every person who sacrifices is a Christ figure. It's just also part of human life. Um, but I mean, I think that also, you know, why, why a theologian would, would, I think overexposure, that's, you know, at the end of the day, overexposure is, is a big part of these things. Um, and I think that I have noticed that, uh, a lot of religious criticism has sort of picked up on the most obvious things and missed a lot of the less obvious things, um, that pop up in pop culture as well. Um, and so, you know, learning to have, I don't know who it was, but, um, talks about an analogical imagination where we can see we can see in spot metaphors and analogies that pop up in pop culture that aren't uh self-conscious or heavy-handed but yet are still useful or um interesting or uh speak up to a larger truth is such an important skill that we don't tend to have because um because we're so literalist about uh the bible and about religious questions and all of those things in the in the conclusion of your book, um, you say that uh, I, I love this. Borrowing from Taylor, you say that um, the pathologies of our secular secular age—the individualism, subjectivism, and the double loss of freedom—are reaching a point of both crisis and cli- uh, and climax. And you sort of say that for uh, people that would um, identify as Christian, there's good news and bad news about this. So, what's the good news? Uh, about the apocalypse and then and what's the bad news i mean the good news is well i should back up and say that you know it's taylor really is the one who continues to insist this is what makes him so refreshing and i think relevant as a philosopher for our day is that he's very very bent on not saying look at these bad things about our culture let's just pretend we don't live in this culture or like let's just go around saying like the world is you know, the worst it's ever been or something like that. He says, no, like, obviously there are, there are benefits and pathologies to a focus on the individual. There are definitely good things. There are horrific, horrific things visited on individual people in the name of religion or in the name of sort of rightness or naturalness, uh, in the past that we now fight against, right. Uh, just sort of reflexively, um, and, uh, and that's a benefit of our age, but then there are downsides too. And that's true of every age. There was no golden age. There was no time when the world was somehow just a better place for everyone than it is now. So that's what, that's where we're kind of keying off of his idea, but also just noting how 
biblical that is, that there's nothing new under the sun and that human nature doesn't change. What changes is the conditions in which we live and the way we conceive of ourselves. Um, I think the good news about the apocalypse is that um, our apocalyptic stories, despite the fact that they're dystopian and frequently um, they tend to come from places that we've created rather than something, some kind of renewal by a great greater being than ourselves. It's interesting to see that most of these stories do wind up wrapping around again to a sense of the transcendent um, of God or the gods of like uh, meaning being found beyond ourselves. Um, and I think that's because a lot of storytellers recognize that it's just a dead end after a while. If all of us are the determiners of our own meaning, if we're the ones who just decide what matters and what doesn't, then we kind of end up self-destructing. We eat our own tails. Um, but a lot of these stories sort of find the answer somewhere else. So I'm thinking of Battlestar Galactica, for instance, which I like the ending of, uh, despite a lot of people not liking the ending of it. I, I, I am 110% in agreement with you. I thought it was a great ending, particularly uh, when two of the characters were just told, uh, were uh, Gaius and the Six, right, are just told that... Mm-hmm. Um, their lives are going to get more ordinary after this. Like mm-hmm. it's because you imagine so many biblical characters, like who you know, their whole life probably, e- even the ones we know about, like that have the big epic stories. Their whole lives weren't big and epic. You know, there was That's an right. ordinariness. And I, I thought I, I, just, I sorry to interrupt you, but I thought that was an amazing ending. Yeah, I totally agree. And it kind of comes, you know, the story really for about two seasons sends you through this feeling that everything is very imminent, very, um, you know this is happening and this is kind of on a trajectory towards destruction. And then the second, the second half of the story really kind of opens out into this sense that like, actually there's a much bigger story and a much bigger plan. And you know, what it meant by they have a plan is very different than what you thought. Um, and that there's some kind of larger hand or larger force on the universe than even these characters really suspect or understand, even the ones who are part of that plan in a bigger way, a more cosmic way than they know. Um, and that kind of gets repeated in a lot of um, dystopic stuff. I think um, actually her is a great example of this again, that like the, the, what happens at the end of her is uh, fairly contradictory to the world that the movie dropped us in at the beginning. I don't even want to give it away, but it gives you the sense that there's like something bigger that meaning is found beyond ourselves, uh, both in relationship with others and also, uh, in a universe that is ordered beyond ourselves. Um, and, and it's interesting to see that our stories tend to wrap around to that eventually. Um, that, I think that tells us something about certainly the nature of stories, but also the nature of where people want to look to find meaning. Um, you know, and you can see the same thing popping up in the way that millennials in particular shoot are, you know, they get, Millennials get a terrible rap for almost no reason, um, partly just because uh, millennials are able to, are, are often the ones who are saying, like, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. Well, it's the same impulse that often leads people toward um, toward meaning ult- in the ultimate places. Uh, and so I think we can see sort of the downside, but also the upside uh, in both those places. Alyssa, thanks so much for talking with me. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, our listeners, again, uh, I, I want to commend to them uh, your book because they all need to know. Every, all of us, if it's an apocalyptic event, we all need to know how to survive it. So <laughs> I, I, Let's all be on the same team in the zombie apocalypse. Think of all the hate 
there is in Red China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. You may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and tell me. All right, back on the mocking cast, the usual suspects, my co-belligerents, David Zoll from Charlottesville, Virginia. Hey, bud. Sarah Condon, Houston, Texas. Hey. Before we get into the contents of another weekend, it's been a big week in the country, the world, and the interwebs. David, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird, of all things Mockingbird, is not going to be with us next week. He is breaking the hearts of listeners right now as we speak, as we speak, even though it's live to tape. But live to tape-wise, as people are downloading this, they're caught in traffic, they're frustrated, they're stressed. David's one of the things that gets them from, keeps them from road rage. Well, David, explain yourself. Why will you be letting our listeners down? Scott, my... Uh... I, I, my self-esteem is going to just be completely um, undone next week when I don't have you to sort of prop me up with these incredible introductions. Um, I'll come with you. You'll come with me? All right. Well, we could. I think we could take it on the road. We could take the whole thing on the road. But- I could be like your Mickey and Rocky. You're a killer, David. You're a killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you flatter me, but we're, I'm gonna, I was invited to speak out in California in Orange County to talk um, this uh, one-day event called Shape by wait, What wait, You Love. Is that, is that the OC? That's what I'm told. You know, I, I've not ever seen that show, and I know that that's a major gap. Look, Sarah, is, if, if, you could, uh, if uh, looks could speak, Sarah is looking at me on the Skype I'm by, as though I'm in crazy. Right? I feel yeah. like you don't know me. I know, I know. I I, I like the, all the music that came out of the OC show, but I, I've never seen it. And I've been told that the first two seasons are really something else. And I really like Adam Brody. He's one of my favorite actors. But um, yeah, so I'm going out there to speak uh, Saturday night. Um, at uh, It's called Shape by What You Love. You can just go to shapebywhatyoulove.com. I'll be talking about, of all things, uh, and those who know me know that this is kind of a, a, a farce from the get-go, but I'll be speaking about exercise, food, uh, health, and how our, uh, you know, just the, the religious, not just undertones, but overtones to those subjects. It actually would be, I think it would be a lot of fun. David, um, no false modesty. Come on. They pick these Christian celebrity speakers based for comments like this, what their little L law battle is. And they just look, all right, here's a manorexic Adonis. Obviously <laughs> the, the fitness level of this guy, the intensity, he's, you know, this, this is his issue. Like, you know, well, it would be funny. I was thinking about it. If um, you ever seen that Seinfeld where George comes out of the, he turns out he like takes his shirt off every time he goes to the bathroom and like he forgets to put it back on and he walks yeah. out into that party and it's really embarrassing. What if, um, just to sort of prove a point, what, you know, people are talking about vulnerability and whatnot. I mean, what if I just gave, the, <laughs> what if I took my shirt off and gave it with just, you know, my bare right. chest, Do hairy, it. disgusting. Do it. What's the, what's the level? What's the bod. level? Cause Sarah, Sarah and I are starting a kickstart campaign. So what's the level <laughs> listeners, if we can raise and we'll give the money, uh, the money will not, it's not, we're not going to make a profit all right. going to the ministry. What's the level of funding it would take? 
that you would do it? Well, you know, I uh, it probably wouldn't. How take much that, you that love much, Mockingbird, frankly. and how you vain know. are you? And how like, <laughs> let's see, money where the mouth is. You can't put a price on you know uh, on a priceless moment, Scott. So uh, let's let's leave it to the Holy Spirit to, to figure out that one out. But I'll say this: if if the gods, uh, or actually if our Lord and Savior decrees it. I'll go, you know, I'll, I will cause all of my, the audience to stumble with the sight of my bare chest. I think that'll be, nice. that'd be. Sarah and I are going right on Kickstarter. I mean, this is, we're going right to Kickstarter. After this. <laughs> <laughs> all right, moving on. By the way, speaking of the OC, before we get into the week's events, Howard Stern uh, was going through the news and Daniel Craig said no to the bot to like 60 million pounds which is like a hundred million for the, for two more bond movies. And what made me think of this is the OC uh, 90210. So Stern was like, you, you figure out a way to like it. You, you, I mean, this guy wasn't in any, he was, hard, he was hardly doing any big movies. Now he's got, he's like, do it for Ian Ziering. I mean, that guy would kill to be doing 90210 still. Now he's doing Sharknado. If you, <laughs> if your ego is too big, do it for Ian Ziering and all the other actors. They would love to have a deal like this. So we should all, so David, Take your shirt off when we raise the money for Ian Ziering. Who would do it, actually? There, Who could well, play you, you in the talk? Shaper White Love. It's so uncomfortable right now. It's amazing. I know. Good lord. Every time I every time I even have to go to the pool with my kids, you know, it's their pool weather. It's just such a, a psychodrama because of how much uh, you know how aware I am of my mid my, my late thirties encroaching and as it applies to body hair. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they have waxing, dude. You could get waxed, dude. California, they could probably get, get a full wax. I'm I'm one of those people that Scott. It's like it's like the question actually is: what is worse, being the kind of guy who would get his chest or back waxed, or having this much chest or back hair? And it's not like a it's not a no brainer because it both are bad in my view. Uh, but I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. And right now, much to my wife's chagrin, I am uh, erring on the side of a, <laughs> the gorilla mic. Sorry, I can't use the word gorilla without laughing, Sarah. But um, <laughs> there you have it. Happens. We're really getting it. We're really getting into some serious content this week. I appreciate this. At guys. least, yeah. at least you're good looking. I'm all up on you, cause you represent California. So, first off, we've got a story from The Guardian that, gosh, David, your father, Paul Zoll's got to love this, Ted Peters, anybody that's got an alien conspiracy theory. There's a dagger, the the dagger in Tutankham's tomb was made with iron from a meteorite. This is what they're telling us, and I think we should take it very seriously. I think, uh, and and they even drop in that article that like, and there's also some glass objects that no one knew how to make glass at that point, apparently, and uh, they were made from falling meteorites heating up sand and turning it into glass. And so, if this isn't, you know, can can we read uh, the the tea leaves here? What uh, were the were the uh, Pyramids indeed built by aliens, as we all know they were. You know, we'll figure it out. Sarah, 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 I'm a huge. I loved this story. Well, I mean, I uh, was one of those kids that was like obsessed first and foremost uh, with the ancient Egyptians, and then secondly with um, 
aliens. I was a, a member of the, what was the show with Mulder and Scully and they just did a remake? Um, X-Files? Yeah, I was like a member of the X-Files fan club and all that. So like this like hits, this hits Apparently all the no longer me. because you don't know the same new show. Yeah, well, I was so disappointed in the remakes, you know, like they, you know, it just wasn't as good as the original. But yeah, um, I was super into that stuff as a kid. So this was really cool to me. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I like about it is that like, I, I think we forget that there's a fiduciary framework to all knowledge. So like everybody believes truths based on truths. Or Leslie Newbigin says that a dogma is just a belief you're not doubting right now. Mm-hmm. So like the, the pianist, the concert pianist can think critically about the keys, but not play them at the same time. So, so like you need dogmas even to doubt. So like, it, but the problem is like, it's hard to doubt your dogmas because then you need new dogmas. So like it, it's something like this, that's like, Okay, wow, what else could be true about outer space and the origins of our planet and that sort of stuff? And I, I feel like most of us spend most of our days necessarily because we're finite and fragile and faltering in a world that's complex, but we we cling to things um, that become idols or little outlaws um, epistemically and whatnot. And so it's just, it's good to be able to doubt your doubts and, you know, and your dogmas. So this is uh, for all the people mm. out there that are conspiracy people. This is, this, you know, You've made me um, doubt some of my doubts and be less dogmatic about my dogmas. Also, we have a story on uh, a less conspiratorial tone. A great interview with Charlie Rose, who I think, along with Howard Stern, is one of the best interviewers in media. He sat down with David Brooks, and Brooks talked about uh, his... He has a new book, right, David? He was talking about um, the new one, The Road to Character. Right. Yeah. Okay. About, relatively sort of the new. difference okay. between. Yeah. yeah. Relatively new. But it's the different. He was talking about the difference between sort of the virtues, the things about your life that you put on your resume versus you would want given in your eulogy. Hmm. Yeah. And he said some, I mean, like he, he told a moving story, right. About a friend who he visited who uh, was a Christian and he was a summer camp friend and it was actually an Episcopal summer camp. Right. Yeah, I've always, I mean, I know for a fact that Brooks has been on the board of Camp Incarnation, uh, which is in Westchester County. And I'm sure Sarah's been there, but I went there a bunch as a little kid. And yeah. uh, he tells this remarkable story about this this man who had had this really powerful impact on him, despite not being, quote unquote, an influencer. But it uh, really, he just died and he, he, David had gone out and visited him and just was just blown away by the serenity and confidence with which he was confronting death. And he was a guy. He wasn't just a strong, uh, you know, a strongly religious person and just a really admirable faith, but it had worked tirelessly to combat things like, you know, sexual trafficking and, um, and uh, worked in the lives of all of these people and kind of stayed in touch with them. It was really, it was a really powerful testimony, actually. Uh, clearly, it had gotten him thinking about his life and the kind of qualities he actually wants to cultivate rather than the ones that the world says we should cultivate. Yeah, I loved that. I mean, I, you know, I hate to draw these lines in the sand and sort of freak people out if they're having a a rough, a rough day. Um, 
But when I was in hospital ministry and I would walk into rooms, the people who um, led very chaotic lives and who did not have some sort of a spiritual centering in death, their rooms were so distinctly different from people who did have some sort of a religious, I mean, even if it wasn't Christianity, but had some sort of a grounding. I mean, it's just, it is a completely different way to die. And that isn't to say that Christians don't have, you know, aren't terrified about dying, certainly. Um, and and there's nothing wrong with that because people have different responses to death. But uh, it, this, this rang very true for the experiences I had in the hospital. Yeah, you know, I remember... Um also, you know, the other thing he said that was interesting that you remarked on before we started recording was he said uh, being softer, being more emotional later in life. Yeah, he and said more, that, yeah, spirituality became more open and frankly more feminine later in life. And that that's the risk. That's the great risk of that, that he was uh, now that he's achieved so much success, he felt he could take some risks. And the, the, the spiritual risk in his life was to kind of being more vulnerable uh, and, and embracing a slightly more, um, you know, what can only be called a more feminine uh, way of, of, you know, engaging himself and the world, especially, you know, when it comes to the divine. I thought that was, it, it took, it was a risk to say something like that in that kind of forum too. Yeah. And in contrast, like to what we talked about last week, like, like with Lena Dunham. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the total opposite. I mean, it, you know, it's like, what if, yeah. What if, what if the, the way to grow in our Christian faith is in some ways to take on these attributes that we see as more feminine. And so like, you know, last week where we talked about the piece where Lena Dunham decided she was going to apologize less. And it's like, well, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that's mm-hmm. the way to have a peaceful hospital room as you're dying. Like, you know, so. And her dad told her that. <laughs> and her dad told her that. <laughs> Who was probably a guy about Brooks's age. So it's, fun, it's funny. It's funny yeah. that what if he had said, yeah, hey, let me tell you. Uh, like basically what her dad said was be more like me. Right. Like, I'm say, so what if he had said, hey, what I'm realizing as I'm getting older, like uh, I, I feel weaker. <laughs> I'm not as virile, strong. You know, like I'm coming to the golden age at the sunset of life. What I'm learning is I think I need to be more like you, yeah. my daughter. Yeah. It's just I, be a different I, conversation. There, there's a uh, the Bishop of New York, the current Bishop of New York, Andy Dietschy, Um, I think it was Andy that told me this great story. Um, I used to work at the Diocese of New York as like the front door man. And so um, I would always have these weird interactions with bishops and they would tell me these great stories. But I remember him telling me he was in his he's in his 60s that he had hit a point where he could no longer push a refrigerator upstairs. Like he couldn't move furniture from the basement to the first floor because he had hit a point in his strength that he knew that was a dangerous thing to do. And I thought, goodness, what a statement. I mean, you know, I'm married to a guy who's still in his 30s and he'll move anything, you know? And so it's like, what a statement of sort of accepting. Right, he is a, another Adonis. I mean, if the, it's, we're, Mockingbird's full of them. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wonderful to hear David Brooks talk about this stuff in this way. Yeah, you know, David, your dad in those talks he gave, uh, which are inspiration for the title of another podcast I do with Bill Bohr, my good friend, uh, New Persuasive Words. In those talks that your dad gave, I think in Chevy Chase, I remember the first talk, I think, where he was talking about uh, the book of Galatians. And he was saying that the reformers, I've never heard someone explain the Reformation this aptly uh, or, or, or this well. He said, you know, that the reformers were these young guys, and they were guys who were very in touch with themselves and realized that the religious cultural establishment wouldn't let them be themselves. Because they say, 
Paul, your message is so dark. We love it, but it's not, we'll never get young people in. And he said, no, the reformers were these young guys. And they realized this was the only way, uh, really, uh, death to the law and these things, the death to this being split off from yourself. This is the only way to really be alive. So the great news is if you get this message in your mid-20s, you can live the rest of your life posthumously. Mm. And and I think that that's it's like the beauty like of David Brooks like starting to live or at least yearning to live posthumously as a guy of significant acclaim and achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Lastly, a little bit about luck. This is from the New York Mag Magazine, Science of Us section. Uh, why Americans ignore the role of luck in everything. David, why do we? Because everyone wants to think that they have um, uh, earned whatever it is that they have received, especially once you've uh, achieved a lot. You want to... Um, you want to say that, you know, actually that's all down to me. There wasn't much, uh, you know, serendipity that, that applied to that. And the, the writer tells this story as with a lot of things on that website, there's an edge to it, but she does tell the story of a, um, the scientist behind this book, this new book about luck and meritocracy, uh, getting on an interview with a mainstream journalist and the journalists who would, I guess, come from England being so offended that what he said is that successful people, um, it's, uh, luck has a lot more to do with it than they would, or chance, you might even say, has a lot more to do with it than they think. And, uh, this guy was so offended because it, it seemed like he was undermining, um, his uh basically his righteousness it was a totally pharisaical moment being played out on national television and you know uh th what what comes out is that you know there that there's a lot of very talented people it's just like you know if you know anyone who's in a in a, in a rock band for example you know that there's a ton of great music out there but who actually succeeds is really down to luck it has almost nothing to do with talent well l maybe to a lesser extent it, it that's how it applies to uh, you know any number of kind of professional categories or spiritual categories as well, and um, but we have to we we as you know this is actually relates to that podcast my dad did about narratives. We construct a narrative built on personal uh, blood, sweat, and uh, you know tears too that we've gotten where we are because we're so great basically or we stuck to it or we had the grit uh involved to to do to stand out and um but that's a lot of you know in hindsight people almost always edit that luck part out but then she said something really interesting at the end or the the scholar said something really interesting he said that you can't if you tell a successful person that they're just really lucky they get extremely upset with you but if you ask them a time when they were really lucky, they'll invariably tell you some amazing story of complete chance that gave them their great breakthrough. I mean, it's <laughs> so you cannot, basically you cannot prescribe it, but you can describe it. And it's uh, the second you tell someone you are condemning them, but if you allow them to say it, then they can, it's basically their testimony. And as I was reading this, Sarah, I could not help but think of your beautiful piece, which uh, I would say if you haven't read it yet, but by the time 
our listeners are hearing this. Everyone's read it because it's like gone viral. But I think about like the self-righteousness of the people's response to the, the gorilla mom. It's funny that gorilla, now she's gorilla mom as if she birthed the gorilla, not the child. Like, so, right, so yeah. true. But uh, the woman um, from Ohio, that, like I'm thinking like, oh, like she had bad luck. Uh, you know, there's like, uh, and you sort of say like, look, everyone, any one of us could be this a bad, a, a absent-minded moment or busy moment. And then all of a sudden you're the worst mom in the history of the interwebs. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we live in a culture also where I remember when we, when we were in New York, like we knew a ton of people who were, um, actors and actresses and they all had vision boards. You guys know vision board where you like it's like a fifth grade art project only for adults. So you get like a poster <laughs> board and then you cut out pictures of yourself as like a successful person or like, you know, words that are really important. Like as though you can plot out your life in that way. You Is know? that and what I'm doing wrong? I've never had that. You, you need a vision board, man. But I get no, that at Staples. What do you, you just get, a, you get? And then you just like, and I have you, room for it here. Right. Well, guys, that, that's going to be actually the gist of my talk in California. It's all about vision boards. Is it really? Yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating because like I I mean you know I have two thoughts on this. First of all, like no one puts the crappy things on their vision board. Like no one's like made national news because I let my kid fall into a gorilla pit or whatever on their vision board. <laughs> you know, and then the other thing is like how how terrible would our lives be if we actually plotted them out in that way? I mean, honestly, when I think back to what my greatest hopes for myself were as like a 15 year old in Mississippi, which granted, you know, I'm in Mississippi. It was like Marion insurance salesman. You know what I mean? Like that's uh, hot. I know. Right. Well, you know, insurance, uh, go to, uh, go to seminary. Turn on. My turn ons yeah. include chocolate, <laughs> bourbon and insurance. Go to seminary, you know, definitely not Yale, like go to seminary and like, and, and run a small church in Mississippi, which is a great gig. But that was like, that was the biggest plan I had for my life, you know? And like what has happened has been so much more wonderful and so much more painful than I could have ever like imagined as a young person. So I don't know. I, I just think, I also think when I hear this piece, like as Christians, how often do we, do we do this? How often do we like credit God, but not really mean it? Like how often do we say, whoa, well, I've been blessed. I've been blessed. And it's like, you know, but really what we mean is like, I've worked really hard to get this. Um, <laughs> and me and God have been in this one together, you know, kind of thing. Well, so. actually though, Sarah, what do you think about that? article that the post that you wrote why, why do you think it struck such a nerve what was it that was so great about your <laughs> your yeah. insight no but seriously what, what i don't what, know i mean I, yeah. I didn't think i was saying anything that was out of the ordinary um I, I i just uh i wish we could all be more merciful with one another and i hope you know and it's my greatest hope in in what mockingbird preaches and 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 writes about and says is that people would know that we are loved by a merciful god and i you know, I think in anything I write, that's what I'm trying to get across if I'm doing it well. So is that, is that because you kind of write, I mean, you have a nice writing voice and you and I have talked about it because we're friends. Surprise, we were actually, we actually had our friends. All this time. But you have a really, I like your voice in prose, but do you like, when you write something like that, do you, like you encourage your reader to think, look, this is you. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, but you just say, it, is that, does it come because you feel that first? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, 
I don't know. I, I, I come from like the classic Southern family with all sorts of like dysfunctional narrative. And so I remember as a kid, whenever I would act like I was better than someone else, my mother would always say to me, well, everybody needs to feel better than somebody, don't they? And like, I do think that sort of ingrained in me, you know, we're always telling mothers they shouldn't say things like that to their kids. So you should say things like that to your kids. Like it makes a difference. It shapes their character. And it definitely shaped me when I encounter people who are the least, the lost and the lonely, I remember that that's me too, right? All the time, every day. Um, and also- it's, we- inter- it's interesting. That's the perfect illustration of how the law leads to the gospel, right? Because most most mm-hmm. of us parent, you know, I'm not a parent, but most people are parented with a combination of fear and shame. Like, mm-hmm. remember, like do this or do mm-hmm. that, you know, so it's, it's imperative, but actually the imperative actually sounds like it drove you to the gospel of like, oh gosh. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, uh, this is sort of something fragile and broken about me that's, true. And now I want to see that there. Well, and to, and to this piece, you know, just to say that not to the gorilla piece, although it may speak to it, but the piece in New York mag that I think is important. And and I thought of in reading this is, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations out there about how to raise compassionate kids, you know, and in the Christian world, we may say, how do we raise kids who understand and live out the gospel? And so often we think it's to say, well, you know, this is what Jesus did for you. Or, you know, maybe in the secular world, like you should be more compassionate and care about people. When really what studies tell us is that if we want to raise compassionate children, we remind them of times that our families have been helped by other people. Mm. So it's, it's not unlike that thing of like, if we want the people who have been very fortunate and successful to, to, to remind themselves, right, to remember that luck has played a huge portion, they have to think about times that they were lucky specifically. So, yeah, I mean, and the, the thing with the gorilla mob piece that's been so beautiful is that all of these mothers have come out and had these stories of these horrifying things that have happened to them that have been entirely out of their control. And, you know, that's where the empathy comes. So yet this very morning, Sarah, my son snuck out of the house, not my three-year-old and my wife and I were searching frantically for him. I mean, we mobilized the entire neighborhood. Uh, he was upset because he wanted us to buy him a Batman boat. (laughs) And, um, you know, we turned our back and all of a sudden- Did he make that up or does it exist? No, he wants this seriously. He 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 he's seen a, a commercial okay. with it or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was hiding in the car the whole time. But like the, the you know, you're just going through your mind. Oh my goodness, is this going to be? You know, we are these. What's going to happen here? It just it, and they've got. He's had a mind of his own. You know, he just just took off. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah. Fortune. What is it saying? F- fortune favors the foolish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Yesterday, uh, my wife, Lindy, got a pay increase. Like a, um, and it was her hospital. She's a nurse practitioner. Her hospital is bought by a different health system. And, you know, they, they're trying to keep salaries competitive. And, um, and she was explaining that, like, if you do this, if you don't do this pay raise thing, because people don't like change. And so we've already had administrative change because they were acquired by a different thing. And she's like, well, this, like, take, for instance, that's why I moved from Michigan. Like, I, like the hospital changed, everything about it changed. Uh, the pay was decent, but it could have been a little more competitive. And so I said, screw it. I'm moving to Philadelphia where my brother was. And, and had she not done that, I would not have met her. So luck uh, has been a lady to me um, and brought a lovely lady into my life. And fortune favors the foolishness. And the foolishness uh, of God is better than our self-reliance. So, mm, absolutely. Thank you all for talking. and. David, we will miss you next week, but 
someone with exceptional acumen and gifts will be here and in your stead, but they can never fill your shoes. And I hope they are lucky. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference in the show on our website, mbird.com. And we love mail. So if you want to give us some feedback or tell us your, your story, send us an email at info at mbird.com. And we might just read it on the show. Also, if you really liked what you heard and you enjoy the podcast, please drop over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review and maybe even pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.